It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the uh, programme and Met Aaron continue to remind us that that status yellow rainfall warning is still in place uh, for us here in Cork and it is in seven counties in uh, total uh, amid fears that downpours could result in some flooding. And there is some good, good news in that there is another drift in the jet stream and that's going to result in a high pressure zone being trapped over Ireland. At the moment there is this wet moist air trapped over Ireland but when that gets pushed away what's coming in behind is this high pressure zone and they reckon it's going to hover over Ireland for about the next 10 days to two weeks and that's going to bring with it more settled conditions more drier spells and temperatures we're told that'll be normal or milder than usual for October bring it on but we've got to get through this status yellow weather warning first which remains in place until the early hours of tomorrow morning heaviest of the rain fall is predicted for this afternoon and this evening could lead to some spot uh, flooding. It'll be kind of a wettish enough day again tomorrow uh, but Sunday then is when the drier conditions will emerge so a kind of a wet start to the weekend but then drier and milder weather and Sunday expected to be the best of a dry with sunny spells when this jet stream is expected to sweep in across Ireland and could we leave that jet stream in place for longer than two weeks uh, please. John Paul taking your calls this morning at 8 1850 Anything you want to share with us, you can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Been listening to Maraid all morning this morning on our news uh, bulletins talking about Bank of Ireland and Bank of Ireland customers at 88 branches across the country will use their local services for the last time today. Some of these services of course will now be offered at the closest post office but it does of course mark the latest shift away from the over the counter banking and of course banks we've seen this for quite some time now they're trying to move everyone to digital and to online services Now, the fact that all of these 88 Bank of Ireland branches are closing today, it was back in March, if you can think back. That's when we first started talking about it. Bank of Ireland came out in March, announced that that these closures will be happening in October. The day has arrived and is all to do with downsizing of its network. Now, over 920 post offices around the country, they'll be offering local banking services instead. Things like cash withdrawals or people want to make uh, lodgements. And of course, the advantage of 
the post office is taking over from Bank of Ireland is that they're open six days uh, a week and on post they're well able to do this they've been very successfully doing it and have been a partner with the AIB for more than 20 years now so the new partnership between Bank of Ireland and the local on posts is a major boost because we know post offices have been under pressure uh, for quite some time and they've been suffering a similar fate really to many of the local bank, bank branches. They've had declining footfall. We've seen post offices close and we're all trying to do everything we can to keep post offices going. So this is certainly a good deal for for the, on post. So Bank of Ireland and on post confirmed that all the necessary preparations have taken place and the post office, everything is up and running for a very successful and easy transfer over when the banks officially close uh, today. So uh, 88 to close and that will leave 170 Bank of Ireland branches remaining open. The ones we're most interested are the ones that are to close today here in uh, Cork. Let me run down through them. The Bantry branch will close. The nearest branch there is Skibbereen or Kenmare. This obviously is the nearest branch of a Bank of Ireland. You will be able to go into your local post office. Cove closes. They say the nearest branch there, Little Island or Middleton. Dunmanway closes today with the nearest branch in Clon or Skib. Glanmire. They're closing nearest branch Little Island or Blackpool. Canturk is to close nearest branch Mallow or Newcastle West. Mill Street losing their Bank of Ireland branch nearest branch McCroom or Mallow. Mitchellstown closing nearest branch in Formoy or Kilmallock. And Yall is also to close with their nearest branch either in Middleton or they can go across the county bounds and do their banking in Dungarvan. And it will be with deep sadness for many of the closures, particularly the ones where may Maybe they're the last bank in the town. It is very possible that that is the case. So, so no doubt there will be a bit of, of sadness in the areas. But as I say, Bank of Ireland have been talking about it, been looking at it. And I remember back in March when we paid a lot of attention uh, to it, they were talking in particular about, you know, they'd done a review of the branches usage. They had looked at the footfall analysis. But one of the big criticisms at the time was they had looked at footfall into the into the branches during all of the lockdowns and since the pandemic began and everyone was saying but sure we were all told to stay at home nobody was going out everybody was trying to do as much as they could online or over the phone and some felt that it was unfair that they'd used that particular year of last year to count footfall because footfall was down everywhere even when places were open uh, footfall was down but anyway it's happening and the branches are closing uh, today and we wish the best of luck to all of the staff members I don't know how many staff members will be finishing up or whether they're moving on to a different branch 1850-333-103 and there is another Irish Times Ipsos MRBI poll that caught my attention today and today's one is to do with the decision of Michael D. Higgins to refuse the invitation to attend the religious event in Armagh which is happening later on this month. It's to mark the centenary of the petition and the creation of Northern Ireland. So Irish Times, Ipsos, MRBI asked people how they felt about Michael D. Higgins' decision. Was it a right decision? Was it a wrong decision? Well, Michael D. will be thrilled if he opens up the Irish Times. Ah, he doesn't even have to open it up because it's on the front page to see that a large majority of voters in this country believe 
that the decision made by Michael D was the right one. More than two thirds of the respondents, 68 percent to be exact, agreed that Michael D Higgins was absolutely right to decline the invitation and not to go to Armagh. Just 17 percent said he should have accepted the invitation and then 15 said don't really care, don't really have a decision on it at all. But 68 percent, that's a high, high percentage point. And of course, last month, President Michael D Higgins came out and he cited fears that the event had become politicised. He declined the invitation, arousing considerable controversy at the time. Unionist leaders criticised the decision. Many of them expressed disappointment at the decision. And we know Queen Elizabeth has also been invited. She is expected to attend. But of course, yesterday we found out that the government has decided to send the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney. And on behalf of the Fianna Fáil party, they're going to send the Chief whip uh, Jack Chambers and they will represent the Irish government and I suppose the Irish people at the event. And in a statement last night where the government came out and because we knew yesterday at the cabinet meeting they were going to decide who they were going to to send. It had been widely rumoured that it was going to be Simon Coveney as Minister for Foreign Affairs. He already has been to Northern Ireland quite a few times in his role as Minister for Foreign Affairs and you know he would already have links with people up there so it seemed like the sensible person to send. But there was talks yesterday that there would be a cross party that maybe somebody would also representing the government and therefore somebody would go from the Greens as well. But it doesn't look like, I don't know whether that idea was floated or not, but it's been decided to just send Simon Coveney and the Fianna Fáil Chief Whip Jack Chambers instead. And last night the government said it reiterated its full support and understanding for the decision made by President Higgins with regard to his attendance at the event but the statement said the government considered its role in this matter to be clearly distinct from that of the uh, president and they went on to say that the reason that they were sending government representatives to it was they wanted to recognise the spirit and intentions of the church leaders in organising uh, the event and then the statement went on to say that they're sending Minister for Foreign Affairs and the government chief uh, whip. Uh, so that's what's going to happen on that event in Armagh which is uh, just a phone of those you know the way when you start reading about a story and you think that's not gone away yet there's still going to be more controversy and more you're going to have a number of people because if if that high percentage of voters more than two-thirds felt that Michael D. Higgins made the right decision not to attend. One wonders if those same voters were asked, well, if Michael D. Higgins isn't going, do you think the government are right to be sending Simon Coveney and Jack Chambers instead? You know, I just, I wonder, will there still be backlash to that particular event. 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862-103-103. Interesting that I went into that song. Well, I just mentioned that the Queen was going to be attending this event in Armagh to celebrate petition. Not everybody is happy, as I, as I suspected, to hear that the government are sending representations in the form of Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Chief Whip. Tim Imbandon says, the government are going to be taking part in celebrating the UK taking part of our uh, country. Uh, Tim is not 
happy with that decision. And into ringing John Paul at 1850 333 103. Jer in Ahada said, I'm livid, absolutely livid is our Jer, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have decided to send somebody to celebrate partition of our uh, country that has split our country a hundred years ago. They do not represent the Irish people, or they will not be representing the Irish people on that day, Jer feels. There was a vote in 1918 for an all-Ireland country and then we ended up with partition a few years later. So they're not representing Jer. Petition has only brought suffering and pain on both sides of the border. They should have stood by Michael D. Higgins' decision to decline the invitation and they shouldn't be going, says Jur in uh, Ahada. 1850 And then there's a couple of comments in about the Bank of Ireland branches that I mentioned. 88 of them are closing and I went through the ones that are closing here in Cork. Pat Infomoy said, we've known for a number of years that the banks were going down this route of closing bank branches. They've been cutting back services slowly but surely over the years. Many people will tell you, very hard to meet somebody when you go into a bank. It's all machines. And now they have the cheek to blame lack of customers and lack of footfall for closing the banks. Yet they were the very bankers who pushed us all to go online and yet now they can use that sort of stick to beat us with to say that there isn't footfall and people aren't using the branches. Of course, Patton from Oise says people aren't using the branches because you go in there and there's nobody to deal with. That's a good point. Jamie said, isn't it a sad day to see all of those banks closing? Jamie says he can remember when he was growing up towns like Newmarket, they would be bustling on a Friday with people coming in from all of the hinterlands. Jamie said it's not, it's not to say that that's not happening today but many of them were coming in they do their banking and then they'd go off and they'd be busying themselves around the various uh, shops. So he said it's sad to think that in the 70s and 80s when, when you think about it we were in the grips of some bad recessions. We had more services then than we have now in 2021 when we were in a country that's meant to be very pros- prosperous. Something wrong there says Jamie. 1850 333 103. John Paul takes your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Cork East TD James O'Connor's futures, a member of the Fianna Fáil party, hinged on a meeting yesterday evening with the Taoiseach Michal Martin and the Transport Minister Eamon Ryan. And as we've been reporting this morning, uh, Deputy James O'Connor has withdrawn his threat to quit the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party and he joins me once again this morning to explain everything that happened yesterday. Good morning to you, James. Good morning, Patricia. Okay. Like to join us from Salter House today. All right, and, and you sound much more buoyed up than you did for the last two mornings, I have to say. So outline to us what happened, who was at the meeting and what happened at it. So uh, we went into yesterday's meeting. Uh, I was very happy that Minister McGrath, the Minister for Public Expenditure, uh, joined us at the meeting with the Taoiseach. Uh, Michal Martin and uh, with the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan. Um, I was very happy uh, to have an opportunity to outline my, my key concerns, as I would have done over the past number of days, uh, with the individual office holders involved in the meeting and the stakeholders. Uh, and we had a significant discussion on three road projects in the constituency, uh, particularly Castle Martyr Killa, uh, the FOTA Access Road, uh, and also the N73 uh, in North Cork. And what came out of the meeting? So the good news is, 
um, and I'm delighted to be able to say it. The government has given me a firm commitment that they are giving their full support and backing uh, in relation to the uh, N25 issue uh, at Castle Marker and Killa, uh, given the circumstances involved and the traffic numbers and the delays in the cost that has on the economy. Uh, there was a clear uh, understanding uh, and also uh, a clear uh, identification of the need for this project to be progressed. Uh, and I am confident, now, following on from yesterday's meeting, that those commitments will be honoured. And later this year, which is fantastic news, the strategic investment report will be supported by the Department of Transport Government and funded, which will initiate the process to get this road built. Now, it's still not actually mentioned in the National Development Plan. So the good news is that we've actually uh, superseded that. Um, so we've gone on uh, from from an individual reference you now to the project actually, uh, you know, being, being undertaken by government. So they're going to initiate the process and the strategic assessment report being funded. Uh, what will happen then is that it will take a, a number of years, given the, the, the process, the statutory process that affects every road project, uh, and there can't be any corners cut in regards to that. Uh, but that process has now, um, from last night's meeting, my understanding is that will begin. Uh, and we will be working closely with Cork County Council on that particular issue. Uh, and also in relation to the N73 in North Cork, um, there is a very significant issue over multi-annual funding to solve the issues on the N73 uh, between uh, Mallow and Nutchestown. Uh, and what we found from yesterday's meeting is that Minister Ryan will assist with me and help to try and solve that issue so the Cork County Council and TRI can get those works underway. Yeah, I mean, it was very disappointing that the N73 didn't get a mention in the National Development Plan. There was actually a significant um, portion of the conversation around that. Um, TRI were trying to label uh, the N73 as a project that required reference in the NDP. Uh, fundamentally, under the last NDP and the current one as well, there was no requirement for that to happen because it was a project that was under €20 million. Euro. And under the public spending code, there are different rules that govern projects that fall under that amount. The N73 safety works are in and around 8 million, I think, as they currently stand. In current, when you look at the current funding for this year's project, if they had proceeded, and next year's as well. So that did require an individual reference. So a lot of people were unaware of that. So the NDP really comes in where projects exceed 20 million. And this is where the argument broke out over Castle Martyr and the photo road as well. Uh, and, and the reason that was is that those projects were well in excess of 20 million. You're talking about 50 and 105 million, respectively, in terms of approximate cost. Uh, and but but we had we had the TII come out to Cork County Council and say there isn't money for the N73, certainly not in the foreseeable future. Exactly. So what happened was that funding had been committed on the basis that this year Cork County Council and TII would proceed. But the issue for Cork County Council, which is important to reference, and I've spoken to senior officials at County Hall as, as lately as yesterday, as last night, uh, on, 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 on this, this particular issue, um, is that they needed a commitment that if the first phase of these works are going to be funded, that they can carry on. And the second, the secondary phase, which is actually uh, multiples of the cost of the works that needed to be done in the next 12 months. So I'm going to work with Cork County Council, with TII, with the Department of Transport as well, to solve that issue. Uh, which is very good news, but it's a very significant amount of money, and Minister Ryan is now aware of that. I also challenged Minister Ryan that TII were trying to use the National Development Plan as a way out of doing these works. And I absolutely have to say that that was unacceptable to me as a public representative uh, for people in Cork East, both north and south of the constituency. 
And I want to say that, you know, he was understanding of that position. And I have to say as well, Patricia, very, very important to say, I am very, very grateful to the Taoiseach Michal Martin and to my colleague, uh, Minister Michael McGrath, who met me yesterday. Uh, they didn't uh, necessarily have to. They came to the table. And I have to say that I am grateful that they have done that. Uh, and I so, and, 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 and you're now saying it, so it's the TII will come up with the funding for for Casamarta Killa? So government government will, through government will. Uh, okay. Department of Public Expenditure. So that's, that's, we had all three line ministers uh, that had, had the authority and power to push this forward. We had the Taoiseach, the Minister for Public Expenditure and the Minister for Transport. Okay. Very, very significant. I'm so, actually here in Cove, just next to Belville Bridge at the moment with the Mayor of County Cork and uh, my colleague, Councillor Sheila O'Callaghan uh, and Gillian Cochran. And we're, we're going to be discussing the, the photo wrote here with the Chamber of Commerce today in court and photo as well. So, okay. Uh, All important. right. So at, at the end of the meeting, you, you, you're happy enough that the work is going to go ahead. And it's certainly good news uh, for people in uh, East Cork. And you've withdrawn uh, your threat to resign from Fianna Fáil. You, you're a rel- you are uh, the youngest uh, and the newest uh, Fianna Fáil uh, TD. Has this been a huge learning curve for you, James? Um, I definitely feel that my colleagues in, in Leinster House uh, learned just how important these projects were to me. You know, I was made the Fianna Fáil spokesperson and transport because I was highlighting these really important issues for people right around the constituency in all parts. Um, and, you know, there's they been continuous work done uh, on their behalf over the last two and a half years. And I think that there was, uh, if I was to say, uh, a better understanding after all that had happened in the last week just how important these projects are to me, how important the constituents who these effects are, are to me and why I want to get these issues solved. Um, and I, I, I want to put across the point that, you know, I think from, from a ministerial level, uh, they have now have a clear understanding of these issues. They will work with me to try and address them. Uh, and the result, of course, will be a remarkable improvement in journey time between Cork and Waterford and Rosslare, the main economic artery along the south of the country for people in North Cork as well to drastically improve safety on what is an extremely dangerous road and okay. hopefully in relation just, to COVID just well, we make progress. From, from the Taoiseach's point of view and even Michael McGrath's point of view is there a danger now that you will have other backbench TDs lining up who will have similar requests. I mean, everybody goes into politics and you want to push your own area and that's really understandable and you're very passionate about the area and, and you know, what needs to be done. But so are many other uh, TDs. Will there be a queue of people now saying, well, look what you've done for James O'Connor, we want you to do for our area? Well, you know, it's important to put into context how we got to this position. You know, right up until last week, I was told everything was fine. Um, and that had been over a continuous period for two and a half years. And that made the circumstances very different. You know, I wasn't coming to them at lastminute.com with a project um, that I was seeking government support with. But I want to say on, on the record, uh, it's important to say, you know, there had been commitments made. But the good news is, and I want to say this in all honesty, I am deeply grateful to the Taoiseach, to Minister McGrath, and to Minister Ryan as well, who I think now has a better understanding of how important road projects are to rural constituencies. And I know the Green Party has their own agenda in government, but the Fianna Fáil TD from Cork East and a TD from Cork, uh, the only TD in the Transport Committee, I want to say that I, I want to ensure that rural road projects that are necessary for regional balanced, uh, develop, or balanced regional development uh, and also about the future of the communities who are all up there representing in government, 
you know, that there has to be focus given on that particular matter by the Green Party and by the Department of Transport. Okay, and by the way, did you raise about the fact how misled you had been? Do you know, we all went into the room yesterday, and I've been using this phrase a lot the last few days, but it's not, the honest reality is the best way to describe it. We all went in there with good faith, um, with the basis of a constructive discussion. It was a very constructive meeting where we dealt with the issue at hand in a very professional way. Um, and I want to compliment the Taoiseach, um, his Chief of Staff, Deirdre Galan, Michael McGrath, uh, and Minister Ryan as well, because, you know, it was it was a very constructive meeting. And I think we all emerged with a better understanding of how the NDP, although not directly referencing projects, would now work to get these issues uh, uh, delivered for constituencies and areas where these badly need to be done. And we had one of the worst examples in the country of a bottleneck in Castlemartin and Killa. And I know confident in the next number of years that significant pro- progress will be made. Will be, will be made, uh, and that we we will eventually see the delivery of this road. But the important point is is that the switch has now been flicked, the lever has been pulled, and now we're going to see this project being advanced. Okay, all right, Liam, one of our listeners who at one stage worked in the council said he actually saw plans that were drawn up back in 1999 for Castle Martyr Killer uh, Killer bypass, and he said yet the traffic has increased so much since 1999. He says, "Well done to Deputy James O'Connor for what he's done for the people of East Cork with the population growing. These bypasses are needed now more than ever." We leave it there, James. Thank you Patricia, for that. Can I just say, yeah. as a final word, I want to say thanks to you for allowing me the opportunity in the last few days to raise this issue. Uh, it got a lot of national attention from the media and we did and I'm grateful to C103 for allowing me the opportunity to raise a very important well, issue. Well, our pleasure. Our pleasure, James. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Um, good morning to you. That is Cork East remaining Fianna Fáil TD, James O'Connor. 1850-333-103. Lines open. Cork Today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, CMIG. Now, in May of this year, a comprehensive independent report found that Cork County Council is not getting its fair share of funding from government departments for its size and population when you compare to other local authorities. Nearly five months on from that report, one local county councillor is fearful the report will just be shelved and nothing will be done about it. Councillor Ben Dalton O'Sullivan joins me with his concerns. Good morning to you, Ben. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning to your listeners. Now, is that the real fear, that this report will just end up somewhere gathering dust and nothing will be done about it? I mean, is, is that your real concern? That's the biggest concern, Patricia, because I suppose when you look at other reports that um, have been sent up to government departments, that's what they tend to do. And I did say at the meeting, I said, my biggest fear is this will go into the government departments and it will die a slow death and that it won't be seen again. And the thing is, you know, when you look how this report came about um, during the last um, mayor's term, who was an independent, comes from Maryland and Foley from East Cork, um, we all knew for a while in Cork County Council that we weren't getting our fair share of funding for roads and community projects and that would be from national budgets, Patricia, not from local budgets. And the Mayor at the time said, you know, we'll get a report commissioned, an independent report um, with the Executive of Cork County Council and just see what's behind this. So I suppose the Mayor at the time with the Executive got onto the um, All-Ireland um, Research Observatory in Maynooth University and they commissioned an independent report and I suppose we kind of knew that we'd get something back but we didn't know how much we would get back and it was explosive. It was um, quite Patricia. stark in places yeah. to, 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 to see. Just remind uh, listeners of how 
underfunded we are here in Cork when we're compared to other local authorities. Absolutely. And there was a number of areas where we were underfunded. So, for instance, for roads, um, Engineers Ireland, who are the, the key people in roads, and um, they do all the standards for um, roads and etc. in the country. They say a road sh- should be strengthened every 20 years. In Cork, under current funding levels, that's only happening once every 52 years. So we have a 32-year backlog to do our roads due to the national uh, funding we're receiving from government. And the big thing is it'll take, under current funding levels, it'll take three quarters of a billion, not million, billion, to bring our roads up to an acceptable standard and just to have them at an acceptable standard. And that's because they've been neglected for so long. Because they've been neglected and for the simple reason, and to be fair, it isn't that Cork County Council's door. We're not getting the allocation nationally that we should be getting for a county of this size. And just to bring that into context, Patricia, when you look at South Cork, which will include everything from Yall back to Carrigline Municipal, my own district, and out to Macomb, there's a population there of 151,000. Compare that to the total of County Kerry, you've 147,000. The total of Wexford, 149,000. The total of Donegal, 159. When you look at the West Cork Municipal District, which is everything from kind of Ballinabair to Ballinhasig, back down to the Bantry area, they have a population of 89,000, when the county of Westmeath has a population of 88,000. Yeah, yeah. So, like, and there was one councillor actually at the meeting in May said, we should actually be getting funding for three yeah, it's a good point. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a good point when you look at the geographical scale of uh, the county. I mean, what really surprised me, I mean, the roads one, I think when you saw it, it was quite stark when you saw it yeah. would take 52 years at the current funding to bring it up. But I was thinking to myself when I read the report, well, no one's going to be surprised with that because people are always giving out about roads. And I think this year, when people did more staycations, the amount of listeners who contacted us to say they were in different parts of the country and they couldn't get over how good the roads were. And they were all saying, yeah. And of course, everyone says, oh, it must be County, Cork County Council's fault. It's not. They don't have the money. They, they don't have the funding. The leader funding was another one. I thought we, did, we were doing yeah. really well under leading. Leader, we're the fourth lowest. Fourth lowest funding per capita and the same with the Clark funding. We have the highest Clark population in the country, but we got the lowest funding per capita. And the thing is, when you look at leader and Clark, their funding, their funding schemes to deliver community enhancements such as car parks, community centres, playgrounds, all these vital things for small rural communities and we're receiving very little in that way of funding. When you look at rural regeneration funding, a very important scheme to deliver you know, big community projects, Cork County Council only received 20%, one-fifth of what County Clare received in total. Uh, that's unacceptable, Patricia. And I suppose what I said at the meeting um, and other councillors came in and supported as well, I said the important thing is we are not asking for a penny more than we deserve. We just want the money we deserve. We're not asking for a penny extra just what we deserve. A fair share, a fair cut a fair of the share. pie, you know. And were you able to find out, Ben, why we have fared so badly when it comes to these national government funded schemes? Yeah, and like, I suppose we didn't really find that out and I suppose we never know going back over the previous amount of years, but I suppose when the current mayor was there at the time, Mary Lennon Foley, the first thing that she did was she brought in all the Oireachtas members, the executive and the chief executive um, presented the report to them and said, right, you're our national representative. There's a Taoiseach and two senior ministers in the in the county. We need this raised at national level. And to be fair, last night I was speaking to Michael Collins, the West Cork TD, and he said that he's raised it a few times and he'd be raising it again in the next few weeks. Um, but I suppose one thing that was done as well was an invitation was sent out to the Taoiseach and the current mayor, to be fair, she wasn't in the job a few weeks and she had the Taoiseach in and she met with him and he was in County Hall for an hour. 
So we're hoping that something will come down the line that Cork County Council will start to receive its fair share of money. But I'd actually argue, Patricia, that we're due a rebate mm-hmm. for all mm-hmm. the years. I think because, like, I look, I'm a county councillor and I'm driving roads, rural roads every single day of the week. And when you see the conditions some of them are in, and to be fair to the engineers in the county, they're doing the very best they can with the budgets they have. But the issue is nationally. And with Pete, if someone rings us after, we'd say, the month of July for a road, the usual answer is, I'm sorry, the money is gone. We'd have to try and get into next year's programme. But that shouldn't be the case, Patricia, when Cork is such a big county. It relies on tour- for tourism. And down west, you've, you've ambulances and you've fire brigades and emergency services. They're travelling all these bad roads. And that's not acceptable either. Yes, the amount of people will tell you their cars are getting damaged and you have to fund, you have to pay for that yourself then to, to get the repairs done. It's just, it's so unfair and people feel we're all paying road tax and we're just not getting enough back uh, from it. So you raised it at the full council meeting. The whole idea is is to try to keep this report alive. in the spotlight. Yeah, keep it alive. Yeah, yeah. We, we want to keep it alive and I'll be putting in a motion every three months and oh, yeah. um, okay. keep it alive. I, I'm going to keep at it, Patricia, because it's not fair. The taxpayer in Cork is not getting a fair deal. And the thing is, you've, the people out they're working hard, they're paying their tax, they're paying their property tax. And another issue, actually, that came up, we raised at the last meeting in May, and this is changing now, but since 2013, when the property tax came in, for every €100 Euro that the people of Cork were paying, €20 Euro was going straight up to other counties. Cork County Council was only left keep €80 Euro of that 100 20 euro was going into what was called the Equalisation Fund to fund the smaller counties such as Oscommon and Mayo and places up in the Midwest and the Midlands. And we just found that was totally unacceptable. So for every 100 euro the people of Cork were paying in Cork County, they were only allowed, Cork County Council was only left keep 80. And that's being changed now, thankfully, and we'll be able to keep the 100 euro yeah, that from make. the next from the next um, that, should, that should make a bit of a difference okay listen Ben thank you for that a number of people saying uh, saying well done uh, to Ben uh, somebody said I, I often wondered what happens uh, to these uh, reports so work. Ben is determined to keep this one alive for sure we'll keep it alive uh, well, we'll chat again Ben thank you for thanks, that Patricia. and thanks uh, for joining us that is uh, independent county councillor Ben Dalton O'Sullivan in the next hour we see how that meeting went on about the Onakura mental health facility that's due to close was it close the end of our October, uh, but it's got a bit of an extension but it's still due to close all of the Cork East uh, TDs showing a united front going into the Minister for Mental Health yesterday. We'll see how that meeting went on. That at more afternoons at 11. Cork Today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Uh, firstly, on James O'Connor, who we spoke with in the last hour, who uh, had threatened to resign uh, his whip with uh, Fianna Fáil unless he was assured that a road in his constituency would go ahead. And he got that assurance yesterday. Donal in Bandon said uh, James O'Connor is completely correct in what he said on the programme uh, today. He would have had the government extremely tight if he had decided to leave. What he did, I would have done myself. So there's no harm if things get in intense, got a bit intense over the last few days. Uh, it, that's the way it should be. That's the way politics work in. Looking at the Irish Times MRBI poll out this week, Sinn Féin are certainly 
at what that opinion poll, the way that opinion poll is going, will be the next party in power. And maybe that's just what we need, says Donal. We need a shake-up of our political system. We also, James reckons, need to look at senior civil servants in this country because no matter who gets elected, uh, they ultimately are the ones that make the decisions, says uh, Donal in abandon. James in Brewery. This is, oh, that's moving on to, just let me hold on that one. That's moving on to roads for a moment. Just let me go with uh, some other ones that were in about uh, James. Michael in Castletown Bear says, Patricia, James O'Connor brings back memories of Barry McGuigan's interview. Thank you, Mr. Eastwood. God bless him. How many times did he thank Michal Martin? He's young and he has a lot to learn. Uh, but thankfully, when he decided not to resign from Fianna Fáil, Michal Martin and the rest of the party would have slept well last night. And somebody else was wondering if I could have asked him, James has gone off the line, would he be prepared to resign over the government sending representations to the North, which is a real kick in the teeth to the nationalist community. That's come in from uh, Joe. And I'll go back to that in, in a moment because there's a number of people commenting on that as well. The government's decision to send people to send the Simon Coveney and to send the Jack Chambers the the government whip they're both going to represent the country instead of I don't know if they're going instead of Michael D Higgins or there's a, there, it's a separate invite I'm not too sure I need to get clarification on that but let me move on to Rhodes because when I was talking with with James O'Connor this tied in with uh, Rhodes he, we were then talking with Councillor Ben uh, Dalton uh, who was talking about that report that came out that shows how underfunded Cork County Council is when you compare us to other local authorities and it just seems really really unfair and of course the biggest one is our roads have been so underfunded and you know we're the largest county in Ireland we've got the most roads uh, to maintain and if the council are not getting enough money to maintain the roads that's what is happening. James says makes the point I'm responsible for the NCT on my car uh, or I am prosecuted but while we're highlighting roads and fundings on local radio somebody needs to be held responsible for the condition of our roads at the moment. If a safety officer for a county is appointed, then he needs to be responsible. And if money doesn't come into that county, then surely he is responsible for this action with politicians. We just seem to be going around and around. Something needs to be done about the condition of our roads. And Heidi also listening to uh, James, or listening to... uh, uh, Councillor Ben Dalton was saying Patricia the state of our roads is uh, because we don't have TDs that will stand up for us in government a little bit like what Cork East Dáil Deputy James O'Connor has done for the good people of East Cork Heidi's in West Cork he says the o- she said the only one I feel that stands up for us is independent Dáil Deputy Michael Collins he's had to get buses to take people up north for cataract operations so I say also well done to Ben Dalton O'Sullivan who is on your programme the young councillor there are people with spirit to stand up for us the people of Cork it's about time that we had more loud voices we seem to be ignored uh, too much in the past that's from Heidi and then going back to the issue of Northern Ireland and this it's, I'm, 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 I'm about to say celebration but I'm the organiser pains to point out that it isn't a, a, a celebration it's a, a commemoration on the partition the 100 year anniversary of the partition and creation of uh, Northern Ireland it is a religious ceremony that Michael D Higgins declined to go 
He said it's become politicised, but the government yesterday at a cabinet meeting decided instead that we are going to send, the government are going to send the Minister for Foreign Affairs and the government's uh, chief whip. Someone says if Simon Coveney goes to that event in Northern Ireland and he calls himself a Corkman, well I'm a Corkman, says this texter, and he certainly won't be representing me. It'll be a disgrace to the rebel county says this uh, texter, if we send, if somebody goes up uh, to attend that particular event. Hi, Patricia, this is from Dan. Lloyd George threatened Michael Collins with a merciless war if he didn't sign the petition agreement. What is to be celebrated in remembering that for the Irish people? Shame on those who decide to attend. Roll on the election. Incidentally, the Queen hasn't yet accepted the invitation despite the Unionists' rhetoric, as says Dan. And you're right, Dan. The Queen, everyone is assuming that the Queen is going to go. But I know I looked into it last, certainly last month when Michael D. Higgins declined the invitation. Everyone was talking about the Queen going. I looked into it and certainly up to last month, I don't know if she has since accepted the invitation but certainly up to last month she hadn't officially accepted it but I think that could be more to do with protocol and the fact that the Queen's itinerary isn't given out too much in advance so when invitations are accepted they're accepted sort of on the QT so that people don't know in advance because when there was so much publicity around this event last month with Michael Higgins, I did see somebody comment on the fact that security would have to be much tighter for the Queen because people, people would be given advance notice of where she was going to be and what time the event was on etc so yeah so I don't know if she has accepted and if that's just as I say down to a protocol or not Hi Patricia everything England has st- has stolen from other countries if you look at everything England has stolen from other countries and that includes our six uh, counties and now they have a brazen neck to invite us in for tea I say well done to Michael D Higgins we can be very proud of the man for what he did Tom in Rathgormick says, I think Michael D. Higgins should have gone up north. Why do we have him? Why do we elect him if he doesn't do what he is supposed to do? Well, constitutionally, he was within his rights. He doesn't have to accept every single invitation. I think if the government tell him to go to an event or ask him to go to an event, I think then constitutionally he must uh, do it. But he gets so many private invitations, it really is up to himself what he decides to attend or not. But Tom reckons he was wrong and that he should have gone. And uh, Pat says, you can't get any higher in politics than the president and those members of the the government going up north I feel are stabbing him in the back oh they're very strong words that comes in from uh, Pat and then someone was on if I can find it because it was a really good uh, point but there's just so many different uh, texts uh, coming in to me I've lost the one uh, I'll get back to it at some at, uh, oh here it is it's from Michael sorry Michael I couldn't find your uh, text um, this is to do with and, I'm, and, and, and I'll give this out to see how others uh, feel about this this is to do with the soccer players not being vaccinated and Republic of Ireland players not being vaccinated. And this got a lot of attention this week because we had the Republic of Ireland and West Brom forward Callum Robinson coming out saying he would not be vaccinated despite the fact that he had COVID-19 twice. And then that put the focus on to a lot of soccer players and it turns out that football managers, the Premier League and the governing bodies and even politicians are weighing in now certainly in the UK on the issues of players not being vaccinated or those being vaccinated against the 
uh, coronavirus. Fewer than half of players at most Premier League and English Football League clubs are uh, vaccin- vaccinated. And I know I was reading a piece online, the BBC were looking into the issue, trying to work out why so many of them were vaccine hesitant and also what was the impact uh, for football. A lot of the football authorities in in England want the players to be double, doubly vaccinated and they were even saying to clubs you need to start offering rewards. Now some of the clubs are doing very well. Liverpool came out, 99% of their players are fully vaccinated and Wolves I think is one of the few where 100% of their first team players and staff are fully vaccinated but then when you look down at some of the other clubs, I know up to last month, whether it's improved or not I don't know 49% of players have been vaccinated. Now that had gone up from 18% uh, the previous months but I don't know where it stands now but it's it's certainly it's around the halfway mark the number of professional footballers who are not vaccinated I mean there's talks of kind of like a carrot and stick thing uh, for them they're saying to them that if they want to go overseas if they're playing as part of you know representing their country there could be an issue because some countries won't allow people in unless they are fully vaccinated so that could be that's been used I think as an incentive to football players but anyway Michael wants to raise that issue and, and he says that he would have no hesitation in saying that every football player who is representing their country and in our case representing the Republic of Ireland are if they're even included on the panel Michael says all of them should be fully vaccinated, full stop. They are role models to younger people and they should act accordingly. They should have respect for the jerseys that they wear and the country that they're representing. Anyone not vaccinated or refusing to be vaccinated should be dropped immediately from the football squad without hesitation. The Football Association should lead by example. They are paid pretty well to do so and they should show some respect and that's from uh, Michael and I wonder would would others agree that if you're playing for your national team in whatever sport even though I did see a piece that seemingly most of the rugby players are fully vaccinated it seems to be more of an issue with the soccer players than with the rugby players but I suppose what Michael is saying if you're representing your country and of course the fact that you are representing your country you're going to have to get on a plane you're going to have to go to another country but of course you'll go and you'll be with the rest of the squad you're putting other people at risk I suppose if you're not uh, fully vaccinated but is Michael right? Should people be dropped from a squad? Should we? We don't have we don't have mandatory vaccines in this country and to be honest when you look at the numbers of people vaccinated we didn't need it thank God but this is on a, on a, I suppose a different level this is where people are representing their country should the players be dropped if they're not fully vaccinated. Your thoughts welcomed on that. 1850-333-103. You can text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. C103 Jobs. Deer Park Motors there in Charleville. They've got a vacancy for a fully qualified motor mechanic. Interested candidates need to forward a CV with details to Fergus at deerparkmotors.ie. A delivery driver is wanted for West Cork CVs to westcorkeggs at gmail.com while a deli manager is wanted for Cronin's Centra in Ballylicky CVs to Cronin's Food Store at gmail.com and please mark your post for the attention of Marie Welch and a legal secretary is required for Hallisey and Partners solicitors in Bandon CVs in a cover letter please to info at hplaw.ie You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103.
Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Yesterday, all four Cork East TDs met with the Health Minister, Mary Butler, to discuss the proposed closure of the Onakura Mental Health Centre in Middleton to find out how the meeting went. I'm joined by Cork East Doll Deputy Pat Buckley. Good morning to you, Pat. Good morning, Patricia. Now, Thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. It's not, you know, it's not often you get cross-party agreement on a local issue, but the fact that all four of you attended together really shows that party politics is pushed aside on this one because it is simply so important. Absolutely spot on, Patricia. And that's the way it should be. I've often said there's a time for party politics and there's a time to park it. And this is certainly a time to park it. But I will say... Um, Going into the meeting yesterday, I was very optimistic, I suppose. But when I came out, all I can say that I'm putting this politely, I'm absolutely uh, very disappointed on the outcome of this meeting. We've got no clarity whatsoever. OK. Do you feel you got a fair hearing? We certainly got a fair hearing, and I certainly hear the, the views of and concerns of the people that may contact with me, but... Unfortunately, they have a plan, but they won't tell us what the plan is. They're committed to doing X, Y, and Z, but they won't tell us what X, Y, and Z is. They avoided the question of a refurb or even a rebuild or what's actually happening at the site. They did say, and fair enough, and I will accept this, that there is no supposedly in place individual plans for all those people, those patients. And they did mention about relocating some, which was a matter of choice for the patient. They also said, the HSC said that um, they're looking at, you know, getting community housing for some patients. But the issue here is trying to be promising X, Y, and Z. We, we have a waiting list in Cork County for housing. But there's, there's absolutely hundreds on it. So, I mean, these seem to be all long-term plans. But the one thing that they did seem to like to do yesterday was to avoid, you know, a commitment to, to preserving all services in Middleton for the best mental people in East Cork and also avoided any commitment whatsoever or even discussion about what's going to happen with that building and that site. Like, what has the reaction been locally to this proposed closure, Pat? I mean, we know how the families are feeling. We've spoken with uh, some of the families here on the programme. But the wider community, how are they reacting to this story? It's now, as I spoke to you the last time, it's probably one of the saddest public meetings I ever did in my life. But I think that sadness now is just turning to frustration. And I'm actually meeting some local organisers tomorrow morning in Middleton to discuss the next plan of action which will possibly be a march um, tomorrow week in East Cork we probably might do Middleton, the old Cove and maybe do one, I'm not too sure yet and there's also talks of uh, bringing people up to the doll we just cannot support to lose these services full stop And as I've mentioned before in the past when we've been talking about uh, Onakura and obviously a lot of the focus has gone on the residents who currently live there and their families are, you know, and some of them are very vulnerable and they've got really fantastic family members who are speaking up on their behalf. But none of us know when you or I or any of our family members will need a service like this. 
oh my God, you never said a true word. And that's another worry I have. The HSE doesn't seem to have any long-term vision for services, not a mind the centre. So they're not even future planning for, you know, who else will be coming down the road that will need those day services or will need those respite services. It just seems to be, to me, it was very rehearsed and dismissed of yesterday. And I was very, very angry when it came out that meeting. And I actually felt let down. You know, because I'm very, very straight and very honest. And I put my card on the, on the table yesterday in that meeting. And yet, I felt that, you know, they weren't really, they weren't prepared to listen, but just go through the motions. And I'm not the only one that came out of there yesterday that was fairly disappointed. And this whole issue and what the, what the local people want and certainly what the families want is for the building, a refurbishment of the building. Do you know, has there been any costing done on the building as to how much a refurbishment would cost? Uh, we are still awaiting that information, which is amazing. Now I know it's been referred to the Public Accounts Committee. I did have a report, uh, the fire safety report, to bring the whole building up to scratch was just, just slightly over a quarter of a million euros. But what was surprising with this report, Patricia, was these recommendations were back. All this work was um, pinpointed for 2016. Yet the front page of the report is 2020, 2020 September 2020. I did raise that yesterday. I said again, why? Are you being so dismissive of the building when you're, and it says in the report, i.e. Mental Health Commission report, the proprietor is responsible. And yes, for every recommendation that was made, going back as far as 2016, right up to the 20th of September this year, the HSE never as much as changed the light bulb, never as much as came to the door, just ignored all the recommendations, and then come out to call a balloon in 2021 that the building is not fit for purpose. They knew three years ago the mention of asbestos. If it's not touched, it's not a danger. Now, there's a lot more buildings in East Cork and in Cork County. We're all built around the, say, the 70s and 80s. That has asbestos. Yeah, asbestos only becomes a problem. Yeah, asbestos only becomes a problem when you do a major refurb or you have to remove the asbestos. Then, then it becomes, then it becomes a problem. So therein lies the real problem with Onakura. It hasn't been maintained over the years. And if you don't maintain a property, of course, it's going to go into disrepair, and eventually get to a stage where it's no, it's no longer fit for purpose. And that's. The, the crux, and that's the crux of the matter here, Patricia, and I've raised it so many times in the last number of weeks, so many different committee meetings, and they've just pushed it on to the Mental Health Commission that the Mental Health Commission recommended X, Y, and Z, but I said the Mental Health Commission, Mental Health Commission recommended to do all these fixes back as far as 16, and we might maybe going back further than that, but you just ignored it. I know you're not taking the responsibility for it, and who is suffering? The patients, the, fam- the patients' families, the whole community is going to suffer if all these services go. And I, I, I genuinely, Patricia, and you know me for a very long time, I am genuinely frightened that once these services are gone, they're gone. They mentioned the day services yesterday. And they didn't like it when I said, you're counselling them in a coffee shop. They use it as an integrated system. We're looking for an alternative premises for the day services. There's an empty centre straight across the road in the hospital, community hospital, across the road, and I told them that yesterday at the meeting. And that could be used. 
they did, I didn't even get an acknowledgement, Patricia. That's what you're dealing with. And, I, and I, as I said, I don't mince my words. I'm here to do a job for people. And my passion is mental health and my passion is community service. And if you can start at the bottom up and start in the community level, locally based, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. And I fear that this, if this happens here, we know the services have been cut as well in Navan. We also know the services have been cut in Tipperary. So are we going to have a tsunami of decentralisation or centralisation, whichever way you want to talk it, that they'll take all the small community services away, put them into the big cities, take the staff in the community areas, try and fill the gaps within the main system and work it from there. And then we're left with loads of white elephants around the country and a system that will be absolutely and utterly, totally unaccessible to people. Okay, and just when the HSE, you say, are pointing the finger of blame at the Mental Health Commission, did the Mental Health Commission in their last report say that this building has to be closed? No. No. No, they never mentioned closure. This is this. this. They said because all the repairs and all the recommendations haven't been carried out, and then the first safety report came on top of that, and the first safety report said it wasn't fit for purpose, the HSE came back and said it's going to cost too much to refurbish, but they didn't give us the price on how much to refurb. We're still waiting for that. They also haven't given us a, a price on a new build. As a matter of fact, I see a, a parliamentary, uh, I think it was a parliamentary question, reply for the costings, not only for Onakura, but for St. Stephen's, and I can't take the other one offhand. And basically, it was a polite, for a polite Patricia, from the department was nice and polite to say, are you joking me? Do you know how long it will take us and how much work it will take to actually find that out? Was off. Basically, that's the reply. That's what you're dealing with at the moment and that's what makes us angry. Okay, well I think the most important one is to get the costing, just to get the costing as, as to how much, uh, it's, other than that we're having arguments that nobody really knows, is it viable, yeah. is, is, is it viable? Okay, so you, but you reckon a lot of local support and people will take to the streets, there will be demonstrations? Oh, there certainly will, we're planning one for um, tomorrow week, okay. is the starting one and I think more that people will be aware of what's actually happening and the possibility of what they're going to lose in the community. I think that's when the, the fear will set in. OK. And just finally, while I have you on the line, it was something I saw that you mentioned uh, during the week. You've concerns about the potential impending closure of Whitegate Oil Finery. What's going yeah, on there? This is the second time round. We, we visited this, I think, back in 2016 when Philip 66 were pulling out. Um, I think it's a combination of, um, I suppose, the demand during the COVID was down. The price of gas to actually run the place was gone up by about 60%. So it's a lot of cost and loss. But there's also, from what I'm hearing, um, a lot more new regulations coming in. And they've can't obtain some license for, um, let's say, bio oil and stuff to be burnt there and whatever. So it's slowing process, making it very expensive. And the owners don't think it's viable. Now, we're, we've already heard about energy power cuts and whatever. But I mean, if we lose this refinery, we lose our energy security for the whole country. 
Right, and we but know I mean, we are we are, we are moving away from fossil fuels, but we're a long way off to having we're all of the very, green very green alternatives. All right. Oh, absolutely, Patricia. Okay. We are a very long way off. Okay, from. it's something that we'll certainly keep a close eye on. Listen, Pat, we leave it there. Thank you for that, Your and thanks, thanks Thank for joining very, very us. Uh, good morning, you. That is uh, Sinn Fein TD for Cork East, Pat Buckley, eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three. Lines open. Cork today on C one zero three with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance. Group for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Brew Columbanus in Wilton. They offer home from home accommodation for families of patients in Cork hospitals. And like so many charities, they've had a very difficult time during the pandemic when it comes to fundraising. So, to discuss a fundraising idea, I'm joined from Brew Columbanus by Anne Maria O'Connor, who is their fundraising man- manager. Good morning to you, Anne Maria. Good morning, Patricia. And, How are you? Uh, well, I I'm, I'm very well. Firstly, how did you manage to brew Columbanus during pandemic and lockdowns yeah, and all of that? I suppose initially uh, back in March 2020 uh, when the pandemic hit first, um, a clinical decision was made that we would close for, close for six weeks. Um, I suppose when things were, you know, at the height of the, of the pandemic. Then gradually uh, we came back and we opened again and parents of babies in the neonatal were allowed to stay with us. And then gradually, um, if you had a relative who was in ICU, you were able to stay with us. And slowly we reopened. Um, I suppose initially we reduced our service from 26 bedrooms back to 12. And we've slowly started to increase, you know, taking it very carefully and ensuring like COVID regulations and COVID guidelines are, are adhered to trying to ensure that all of the guests were kept safe. Uh, their patients in the hospital and indeed our staff as well and the staff in the hospital. So it was difficult um, but we were delighted to be able to reopen after that short time. I suppose for people who don't know about Brew Columbanus and I'm I'm singing your praises and have been for a number of years because you you helped out a very, very dear family to me so I know how wonderful you you are. But I remember at the time Somebody mentioned Blue Columbanus, and I said, "Who?" And it's it, and it's only when you need the services of Blue Columbanus that people realise you're there. So, yeah. just explain to people what you do. Um, what we do is we provide home from home accommodation to relatives of patients in Cork hospitals. So, it's a 26 bedroom facility. And then there's a shared kitchen and um, there's a gorgeous atrium here where families can sit and um, take some time for themselves as well. And then there's also a playroom here if you have um, if you have um, a child staying when there's another child in the hospital, if you have other children, there's a playroom here. And then there's also utility rooms where guests can wash and dry their own clothes as well. There's a utility room in each bedroom wing. So it really is a home away from home. You have all of your own comforts of home. And we try to keep it as clean and as fresh and as, pos- uh, you know, as, as we always are repainting and doing bedrooms up and always making sure that it's very comfortable. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's of a really high standard, it really is. And, and, and of course, the, the main thing about Blue Colin Banis, you offer this accommodation free of charge. We do. We rely totally on donations and fundraising initiatives to cover the running costs of the house. And did so, you manage to do that even though all your fundraising dried up? It was very difficult. It was a challenge, um, but we did. We also have a charity shop in Skull and that provides funds for us as well. So um, we did manage just about to cover our running costs. 
Okay. Um, just about. But okay. it was, a, you know, it was a real struggle. Yeah. But I suppose all our usual fundraisers were cancelled. Our ladies' lunch, our street collections, all our usual events were cancelled. So we looked at doing different events. Um, I suppose we adapted quite quickly. We looked at doing things virtually. We had a Kenmare walk that we normally have every year, and we ran that virtually. So and we did a couple of other little bits and pieces like that that we tried to, tried to you know, well done. Well move done. with it and try and to adapt. Yeah, and it's trying to think outside the box and, and yeah. come up with. And I love, yeah. I love this new idea. Yes. You want to produce a cookbook. Tell me about yeah. this. Yeah, so our cookbook is um, what we, we, I suppose, we got together as a fundraising committee and said, what can we do that's a little bit different and would involve all the families who have stayed with us and our volunteers. So we've decided to put together a cookbook. And the cookbook is going to have a little piece, a little recipe from each family that, from families that have stayed here, um, a recipe, a photo of the family, and then just a short bit about why they stayed here. And then we're having our staff involved. We'll be, do a little piece about how they've got involved with the charity and our volunteers the same. So it will be absolutely gorgeous. It will be the, really the story of Brew Colin Bannis. Oh, yeah, We're open be. now 16 and years. The and stories, I imagine. Yeah. Some, of them, some of them well... Oh, oh some of them are. Um, you know, I'm getting the emails in every day um, from families who've stayed here. They're heartbreaking. They're, they're heart-lifting because some of them are so positive and some of the outcomes have been so good. Um, but some of them are, are actually heartbreaking. But the story of Brew Colin Bannis will be, and the book will be absolutely beautiful. Um, Did I read somewhere that you, you you've got to over nine thousand families? Over nine thousand families have stayed now with us. Yeah, since we opened, uh, or we celebrated our sixteenth birthday on the twenty eighth of September. So, um, yeah, so we've been here now sixteen years and over nine thousand families, it's, which it's, is absolutely fantastic. It, it really is fantastic. And the yeah. idea is, you'll put this cookbook together in in time for Christmas. Do you reckon? Yeah, we'll have yeah. it. We'll have it on sale by November. And okay. I suppose that's the thing. We're still looking for families. There's some. Families Families who would have stayed with us who haven't been in touch, and so we're still looking for some more families to get involved. So if anybody has stayed in Brew and they wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about why they stayed, a little photo and maybe a recipe as well, mm. or we would be absolutely delighted. And if people are a little bit, you know, shy about the photo, that's fine. You know, okay. we will be happy with just the recipe and the little little story as well. And where will you put the cookbooks on sale? The cookbooks will be on sale from our website. And we'll also have them for sale in our charity shop in Skull. And there's a couple of other outlets that we will have all those confirmed on our website as to where they will be. And if anybody does have a shop that they'd be willing to take a few to sell, be get great. in touch with us. It would be that. great. Yeah. Um, I've purchased your Christmas cards in the past. Will you have those on yeah, sale again they, this they, year? Would you please? You, you'll be a bit shocked. We have them on sale already. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm not shocked by that. I know a friend of mine who in July wrote her Christmas cards. No, she was you in know, just, we have them at sale, for sale at reception here just because sometimes yeah. people are leaving, they'll pick up a couple of packets of cards when they're leaving. Yeah, and they're not? also on our website as well. Why not? Well done, well done. They're, all, they're, they're always lo- lovely cards as well. Oh, okay, right. and you'll help people along the way. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. If anybody needs any help with putting together their story or a few words about if you know if they can't quite remember dates of when they stayed in Brooklyn and Banners, get in touch and we'll be able to pull out that information for them as well. And if anybody has any idea for a fundraiser, they'd like to do a little oh, fundraiser, absolutely. you'd love it. Absolutely, you'd love yeah. it. You'd love it. Well done. Yeah. Someone wants to know: Does Brew Columbana still have the large rooms available for meetings or classes for the public to hire? Did um, you do that at one stage? We we have large meeting rooms here that we hire out. Um, we are, I suppose, 
with COVID in mind, we're being very cautious of the number of groups that we're having in. Uh, but certainly, if somebody is interested in booking a meeting room, get in touch. Okay, all yeah. right. And so, uh, slowly, but surely slowly, things, yeah. You know, though, I think I think everybody is being cautious and and rightly so as well. You know, and of course, you would have uh, as well with people not able to visit the hospitals. That would have had yeah, a, that an has impact. had an impact on us. We're now we're definitely below capacity at the moment, but slowly things are. We have seen an increase in in families being allowed to visit their loved ones in the hospital. Okay. So people can, can can contact you at uh, brewcolumnmanus.com for yeah. more for for more information. Absolutely. And actually I was in I was in Skull uh, during the summer I didn't realize that shop was there until, until I walked past yeah, it. It's, it's a, a lovely little shop. Oh my god, it's fantastic. We have a great team of volunteers down there and the clothes it's like a boutique. It's, it is, it's yeah. more, more so than a charity shop. It's more like a boutique. Yeah. And they have a fantastic bric-a-brac section as well. And we a lot of people donate um their we'll say their used clothes to us here in Cork and then we bring them down to Skull when we're travelling down or if somebody's going down to Skull they bring them down as well So they and they get great donations from the, the local community in Skull as well and great support there Brilliant it's, yeah. it's brilliant and of course charity shops are now the thing I mean they, I you know, know it's, it's a hip amazing. and trendy yeah, it's all the vintage you know, clothes Yeah exactly it's all about reuse and recycle you know yeah. um, and not having disposable, I suppose, in, particularly in this, you know, in the environment, trying to protect the environment, like charity shops are an ideal way to reuse everything and make sure that things aren't wasted as well. And seeing as I've mentioned your Christmas cards, somebody said, are the Christmas cards on sale at the they shop are. in Skull? Uh, I, they'll be there in the shop ne- in Skull from next Thursday. Next Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> somebody wants to go in and get them. Okay. Yeah. Now I see you're saying, we got you selling Christmas cards as well, which yeah, is great. Fantastic. All good, all good. Listen, you're you're a fantastic bunch of people and long oh, may you continue because so we're always going to need, unfortunately, we're always going to need yeah. uh, your services. So mm-hmm. the best of luck to each and every one of you. And go, I can't wait to purchase one of these cookbooks oh, uh, when they come out. But listen, great. stay safe. I'll, I'll be in touch and let you know when Please do. Please do. We'd love to chat about okay. it. Thanks, Thanks a million. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that is uh, Anne-Maria O'Connor fundraising manager at just the amazing Brew Cullen Banis. they really do as I say it's just one of those organisations and when you find yourself in that position where you're away from home you're in the middle of Cork you have a loved one in hospital you need to be close by the hospital and you don't want that travelling up and down be it from West Cork North Cork outside of Cork uh, many families as well would, would have stayed there and suddenly this place right across the road it's in right across the road from CUH uh, in Wilton this amazing Brew Columbanus. And there's a lovely uh, c- uh, camaraderie as well you'll find amongst families because if you're there for a period of time, maybe a number of weeks, a number of months, and you end up meeting other families and it's everybody asking, how's your loved one doing? And that, you know, bonding that you get over having a loved one very, very unwell uh, across the road, either in the hospital or indeed in any of the Cork hospitals. They're a great organisation and anything that we can do to help promote them and to keep them going, we're only too happy uh, to do. So good luck to everybody in the charity shop in Skull for Blue Colin Banners. And for families, if you did stay there, please consider getting a recipe in and just a little note about why and when you actually stayed. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. A couple of shout-outs to people. I've been asked to mention that the Duhalo Vintage Club are holding a vintage run. It's an aid of cystic fibrosis that's happening next Sunday and it will leave Dunparaf 
Drum Tower of Parish Hall with registration opening at 10.30am on Sunday morning and the weather for of course is quite nice for next uh, Sunday so it'll be a nice day for all of the vintage cars uh, to be out and motoring around the beautiful Do Hollow uh, area. Good luck to everybody there because that's in a really good cause uh, cystic fibrosis and also staying in Do Hollow there was a text in earlier if I can find it from Bridget here it is thanks uh, Bridget uh, Hi uh, Patricia could you please give a mention and to give a boost to the Do Hollow Choral Society they're looking for new members particularly men Training happens every Tuesday night between 7 and 9.30 and the training happens at the McAuliffe Culture Centre in Newmarket. So if we any males in the Dohalo area with nice voices who'd like to join the Dohalo Choral Society, feel free to pop into McAuliffe Culture Centres on Tuesday nights from 7. Choirs will tell you and choral societies will tell you it's always difficult to get the men. It's not that the men can't sing, but it's always difficult to get them involved. But then once they do get involved, it can open up the world to you there's a whole new circle of friends and fantastic enjoyment as well so good luck to everybody in the Duhallow Choral Society and I hope you get a load of men flooding in your doors Hi Patricia would you give a mention to a drive-in concert that's happening at Theo Park on this coming Sunday it's an afternoon event half past two music is by Muriel O'Connor and Fran Curry followed at four by Michael and Philomena O'Brien with guest Aoife Leonard now admission will be 10 euro and it's a fundraiser for the refurbishment of the community hall. Thanking you from everybody at Theo uh, Park. Enjoy that. Uh, folks, sounds like a nice afternoon of, of music. And then a listener says, Hi Patricia, could you announce this on your programme please? I went in to use the ATM machine in Galvin's shop in Dunmanway yesterday. It was about half past one. As I approached the ATM machine, I noticed that somebody had left their money behind them. It was still in the machine. So I took it out and I handed it to one of the girls behind the counter. But will you give it a mention because somebody may have thought they took it out and then thought they lost it when they left uh, the store. So if you were in Galvin's shop in Dunmanway and it would have been around about half past one because I'm open to correction but I'm sure what normally happens if the money isn't taken out of the machine within a certain period of time the machine sucks it back in so it would have been the person literally within minutes before you approached it at half past one uh, please pop in to the girls behind the counter are looking after that money and well done to you for your honesty now some of your thoughts uh, coming in to uh, us still getting commentary in on the government deciding to send people instead of Michael D. Higgins to that religious event that's happening in Armagh to mark the centenary of the partition and creation of Northern Ireland. Ellen Incana said what an insult to the President of Ireland that those two, namely the Government Chief Whip Jack Chambers and the Minister for Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney. It is a pure insult to our President uh, Ellen Sounds. She's very, very annoyed about it. And then lots of people commenting on Michael who had texted us earlier who felt that the Irish soccer team we know there's been so much debate about the Irish soccer team this, this week and the numbers of them that are not vaccinated. Michael reckons if you're representing your country, then you should be vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, you should simply get dropped from the team. Now, I don't know if the Irish soccer team has the luxury of that many players that we could be dropping them, but that's an argument. That's an aside argument. Now, Patricia, you're wondering about international sports stars and if they should be dropped if they're not fully vac- vaccinated. Well, they, for the most parts, are playing their soccer outdoors. I have a lot more concerns about teachers 
office workers and others working indoors, especially those who are not alone, who refuse to get uh, vaccinated. There are also those who simply don't believe in COVID-19. I believe there are many of these uh, people, even if they had symptoms, there'd be a very slim chance of them acknowledging the symptoms, keeping them to themselves and actually self-isolating in a short few weeks. They will be free to wander indoors without restraint or consideration for those, no matter how vulnerable others might be or feel. And we know from the 22nd of October with the lifting of restrictions at the COVID passes, we're not going to be using those anymore. The only thing I suppose we can take comfort from in this country is the high number of people that are vaccinated. I mean, we're up at, are we over 90% now fully vaccinated? So we can take comfort from that. But yeah, you're right, there will still be 10% of people wandering around who have decided for their own reasons not to get uh, vaccinated. John in Blackpool says, Patricia, on vaccines for the Irish soccer team, when I played soccer, it was all about team spirit. I agree with Michael and his suggestion. Drop those who don't want to get vaccinated. Players should be thinking of the health of all of the teams, not just of themselves. Uh, Deirdre says, we still live in a democracy. If you do not wish to be vaccinated, then that is their right. It seems to me that people people who are afraid are those who are already vaccinated. Why? I am more worried about the numbers still waiting for hospital appointments and still waiting for surgery. Our, our, our eyes appear to be blinkered. Nobody seems worried about anything but uh, COVID. We remember more people die of heart disease every year in this country than would ever die from COVID. That's from Deirdre. Hi Patricia. Yes, they should be dropped from playing. As your listener Michael said, they are the ones who will be travelling on planes Sure, after the 22nd, you'll be able to go anywhere. You won't know who's been vaccinated and who um, has. Someone else says, I think everyone who doesn't, who makes the decision not to get vaccinated, and then in brackets, the text says, I don't mean people who have a very good reason due to ill health or due to condition can't get vaccinated, which we know is a tiny, tiny proportion of people. But for the others who decide not to get vaccinated, they should be refused treatment should they get COVID. Never mind trying to bribe them with rewards. If they're so selfish not to consider others, why would we consider them and have them blocking up our hospital beds? Which, yeah, I suppose is the point that we vaccinate to protect ourselves but remember we also vaccinate to protect other people and people who will be more vulnerable if they did pick up COVID so that is that is a really good point. Someone else says if a player has not been vaccinated how did they up to now travel without quarantining? Not accepting the vaccine is fine but surely they, sh- they shouldn't be able to travel. Well I suppose they would have to get negative PCR tests before they would get on a plane and if they arrived in a country that was deemed that had quarantining they would have to quarantine. They wouldn't, I don't think they'd be able to get around it because I know certainly in Australia when they had the Australian Open for the tennis all of the players from the top players down and all of their support team all of them arriving into Australia all of them had to do the two weeks mandatory quarantining and there was no exemptions made so I take it it's the, it would be the same if they'd gone if soccer players had gone to a country where they would be forced to uh, uh, to uh, quarantine OK and also on this let me see there was another one in on an explanation as to uh, why 
Uh, here's this one. Jim says, Patricia, the players, this is on the British players and why the British players are not getting vaccinated. The players are afraid it will affect their virility. And did you hear the story about Nicki Minaj's cousin dumping her future husband at the altar as his testicles allegedly swelled as a result of taking the vaccine? And they say, you know the amount of worldwide followers she has. They're like sheep and they follow her lead. In a club in Germany, in Berlin, they, they had players who won't take the vaccine, so they make them pay for their own COVID tests, which they have to have on a regular basis, and it's costing them 1,600 euro a month, says uh, Jim. That's one way to get people. It's going to cost them money if they don't get vaccinated. Just by the way, on the Nicki Minaj uh, story, I did, and it wasn't Nicki Minaj's cousin, it's one of these, it was Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend in uh, Trinidad decided that she wasn't going to marry her partner, her fiancé. She called her at the wedding. He wasn't at the altar. He, She alleged that her partner became impotent after getting the vaccine. And you're right, it was to do with one of his testicles became swollen and she was convinced it was because of the vaccine. And the cousin's friend called off the wedding weeks away from getting married. Now, I have to say, Nicki Minaj was the one sharing the story. You've got to remember as well, Nicki Minaj is anti-vaccine. And how we know that, she could go to the Met Ball this year because the only people allowed to go to the Met Ball were people who were doubly vaccinated and she wasn't doubly vaccinated. She said she's still doing her research. Then she shared the story of the cousin's friend in Trinidad and the testicle being swollen and the girl calling off uh, the wedding. And then a number of people pointed out to Nicki Minaj that the reason for the cousin's friend's future fiancé and his testicle swelling could have been for a host of different reasons, including it can be linked to sexually transmitted diseases. And one wonders, was that girl looking for an excuse to drop her fiancé? Because it seems if you love somebody that much and something happens that leads you to believe that they may be impotent, would you call off your wedding? I don't know. Is that real love or not? But yes, I did see it. And yes, I know exactly the point you're making, Jim, that she would have a lot of followers and people would pick up on that. And once they see it in a tweet, or they see it in an Insta story or on Facebook, sure, it must be true because Nicki Minaj said it. So yeah, I, I know where you're coming from. 1850 333 103. And Stephen in County Kerry who regularly texts the programme. There seems to be some problem with his texts getting through because I haven't been getting them, Stephen. I haven't been ignoring you. I haven't been getting them. So he sent a WhatsApp one instead. Well done. Uh, he says, believe me, the roads are every bit as bad in Kerry. This is to the people who are constantly saying that Kerry have much better roads than we have here in Cork. Stephen says, I've already buckled a wheel, I hit a pothole and I burst a shock absorber all on one of our national roads. And I, says Stephen, consider myself a very careful driver. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie Drive-in bingo happening this uh, Friday night in the Creamer Yard in Kildallery. It starts at 8pm and the NCBI charity shop in Bandon. They're looking for volunteers to work with them. Just a couple of hours per week. If you've got any spare time, can you call 087 3484997 and the centenary commemorations of Clonbannon ambush will take place tomorrow it begins with mass in Derry church at 1:30 followed by ceremonial duties and then in the evening time there will be refreshments and entertainment in Drumtariff parish hall and cora threshing will take place next sunday with lots of attractions like a vintage display sheep shearing wheel of fortune vintage runs leaving at half past 1 
and registration for that will open at 11am on Sunday. There's prizes for best dressed lady and gent, lots of stalls with crafts, home baking and lots more. Something for everyone at Cora Threshing next Sunday. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Now according to today's Irish examiner, archaeologists are set to examine a set of historic skeletal human remains which were found buried under a partially demolished pub. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Close to the medieval heart of Cork City yesterday, writing in the paper today is Owen English, who joins me. Good afternoon to you, Owen. Hi, Patricia. Now, it's the former Nancy Spain's pub on Barrick Street that many of us remember going for a few drinks at some stage. Uh, just talk to me, how did this story unfold yesterday? Well, we got a tip-off uh, yesterday morning at around uh, half eleven, Patricia, that uh, the builders working on the demolition of the pub uh, and who were paving the way for the construction of a 32-unit social housing development on the site for Cork City Council had spotted uh, what they believed were human remains and skeletal remains uh, buried under several layers of of topsoil. And uh, about an hour or two later, it became apparent that um, Gardaí had been notified and they arrived on site and they preserved the scene. And um, it was a consultant archaeologist who had been monitoring the groundworks on the site, had called a halt to the work and following an examination of the remains on site by Garda in the crimes experts uh, and by the consultant archaeologist who was on site with the builders, it was determined within about an hour or two of the discovery that the remains weren't what they would class as modern remains uh, dating within the last 70 years, that they were in fact um, older than 70 years, perhaps uh, you know, at least 100 years old and maybe even several hundred years old. But the key thing that the guards and the archaeologists had to establish yesterday was were these remains more modern and if they were, that would have triggered a guard investigation. But 
because they were able to establish quite early on that the remains were what they class as historic or as an archaeological find, um, the matter was no longer an issue for the guards and the site was handed back to the archaeologists and the builders. And it's now over to the archaeologists to record the find, um, to take photographs and to do drawings and map the finds of where it was found in the ground. And then to remove the bones, and there will be an attempt made over the coming days and weeks to take samples from the bones and maybe subject them to carbon dating to see if they can put a date on these remains and now, whether or not we'll ever find out who this person was or how they died, that remains to be seen. But certainly it's, uh, it's now an archaeological mystery. Yeah, and you mentioned that there's a, there was a consultant archaeologist on the site. Is that just because it's one of the oldest parts of the city? Yeah, it would be a very historic street. Um, it's very close to the medieval heart of the city, to, to, to St. Finbar's Cathedral and to the Southgate Bridge, where just about four years ago, builders working on student accommodation there on the former Beamish and Crawford site unearthed uh, a 1,000-year-old uh, fully preserved Viking sword. So when the City Council granted planning permission for this scheme uh, on the site of the former Nancy Spain's pub, they were acutely aware that you know something of interest from an archaeological perspective could be lurking uh, underground. Um, the site is is in within a zone of what they call archaeological potential. So, um, archaeological mitigation measures uh, were in place for the groundworks. What that basically means is that all of the groundworks were being overseen by this consultant archaeologist who was on site. And when basically the the builders yesterday were digging down, um, they had already lifted the floor of the pub. They had lifted some of the concrete slabbing underneath, and they were. Uh, digging down several feet um, and it was during that work that the consultant archaeologist spotted what he believed to be uh, human remains and as it turned out he was right it was was described to me last night as a partial uh, human skeleton Um, what they'll have to do next I suppose is dig around the area where these remains were found to see if there are other bones to see if they can build up a full skeleton and then obviously the detective work really starts mm. uh, can but they, they establish but they don't believe that it's Viking bar, that far back because of the depth it was buried yeah um, again now this was just based on a preliminary assessment of the bones where they were found yesterday and what I was told by people who know what they're talking about <laughs> in this field is that the bones weren't deep enough or they weren't contained within a layer of soil that would be associated with Viking times you know going back to, going back nearly a, a millennium uh, that they would appear to be more recent. And, and when they say more recent, they mean within the last maybe two or 300 years. Um, but, you know, that's going to be part of the detective work that they have to do now over the coming weeks is to try and date the remains uh, if they can. And then if, if they can do that, maybe try and find out who this person was, uh, how they died. Um, and how come they came to be buried under Nancy Spain's pub? <laughs> and of course, the site now stops, the, the building work stops, I'm assuming. Well, it, it has certainly stopped in this area where the remains were found. They were found uh, just a couple of feet behind the facade of uh, of the pub, and basically all that's left of Nancy Spain's now is just the facade. Um, the photograph that we have on the front page of the exam this morning, taken by my colleague Dan Lenhan. Uh, shows the archaeologist standing in a hole about knee or thigh deep, and that's where the remains were found. Okay. Uh, so the work has stopped in that area. 
uh, but it's continuing to the uh, other side of the site. It's a, it's a large site between the former Nancy's Bains and the former Quinn Ryan pub. So it's a large site. Work was continuing there on the rest of the site yesterday when, when we were there. Um, so what they have to do now is basically record yesterday's find, continue with the groundworks in the other areas under the supervision of the consultant archaeologist. And if they find more stuff, which I think they are, are expecting to do the same again. Yeah, yeah. And what's been built there, uh, by the way, Owen? Uh, the City Council has planning for a 32-unit social housing development oh, to be built in a lovely courtyard. So it's going to bring a lot of life uh, to the street, I think. Um, I just It had been a while since I'd walked up Barrick Street and just even there yesterday, a lot of shops are, or a lot of premises are closed and uh. boarded up. There are some lovely coffee shops there, some lovely bars, but I think What's missing, uh, I suppose it's the problem in a lot of Cork City, is what's missing is people living in the city centre. I think this will go some way to injecting a bit of life back into the street. Yeah, and we all have such fond memories of uh, nights and days in Nancy Spain's. Uh, we, we do, <laughs> um, Patricia, we do. Yeah. <laughs> the ones we can remember. Yeah. <laughs> and on that point, we leave it. Uh, listen, thank you for that. Uh, Owen, appreciate you taking uh, time out to talk to us. Good afternoon to you. Thanks, Patricia. Bye-bye. That is uh, Owen English, a reporter with the Irish Examiner, reporting on that uh, story today. Well, I just, I have a fascination with archaeology. I could, you know, when they do those archaeology programmes and they're in there with the brushes and they're brushing away until they find uh, something. And this is, I think Owen is right, this is a very old part of Cork. I imagine there will be more finds on this site as well. And we will leave the work now with the archaeologists to examine the remains and hopefully they'll come back and let us know exactly uh, what was uh, how long the body has actually been there for. 1850-333-103. Can I go back to some uh, WhatsApps that were in earlier? There's one in particular I want to get to for a listener because I, during the news, I did a quick Google search on this one. This is from Sean. Sean says, Patricia, what is the position regarding getting receipts when you're buying an item in a shop? I've noticed that you don't get so many re- receipts, particularly in smaller shops. Is there a legal requirement? And there isn't. And I, I was surprised when I read this. There's no legal obligation under consumer protection law for a business to provide a receipt for the goods that you buy. However, the vast majority of traders will automatically issue you with a receipt or if you request one, they will give it uh, to you. But there's actually no legal obligation, which I was really surprised by. And I was saying this to John Paul and he reckoned it actually came up as an issue on the programme uh, with the when we were when we had a discussion with the Consumer Association about the buying of vouchers and seemingly it came up then where a listener's question came in and the Consumer Association uh, were probably prob- more than likely Dermot Jewell was talking about the fact that under consumer protection there's no legal obligation. I was really taken aback by that because most businesses if you want to return something will insist that you have the receipt and will actually say to you that they won't let you return an item without uh, a receipt but seemingly there isn't a legal obligation but you can request one. Now what actually happens when you request one, do they then have to give you one or not? I don't know. And I'm trying to think, when I saw Sean's text, I'm trying to think, certainly since the pandemic, I've noticed a lot of shops will say to you rather than hand it to you, 
they will ask you, do you want your receipt? And I think that was to do with the early days of the pandemic when people were afraid of touching anything that had been touched by somebody else. And I always felt for that reason, a lot of the shops would say, you know, do do you want uh, your receipt uh, or not? But Sean is talking about shops that they go into where you don't even get offered a receipt. 1850 John Paul, taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Get weekly news, event updates and community information from across Cork with our regional reports on c103.ie. From Bantry to Buttevant to Hallow to Dunmanway and every area in between, we've got it covered. To listen, go to c103.ie and click Regional Reports or download the C103 app and click Podcasts. Regional Reports, only on C103. Record today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. We've been talking about the North and that uh, commemoration that's uh, going on to to the religious event in Armagh to mark the centenary of partition and the creation of Northern Ireland. Uh, thank you to Michael. He's just sent me on a piece. It's just on breaking news that the former Northern Ireland Secretary James Brokenshire has died. He uh, was just 53. He had been suffering from lung cancer and he has sadly uh, passed away and that would be a deep loss to his uh, family. That's the Northern Ireland uh, Secretary. And just staying on that issue of the government deciding why they're absolutely respecting the decision by My- Michael D. Higgins, our president, not to attend. They have decided and said that they are sending the Foreign Affairs Minister and the Government Chief Whip. A listener, there's, is there a name? Grania in Connor. Thank you, Grania, for putting your name on it. Uh, Grania said she, it actually makes her very sad to think that two members of the government are going to go to this event in the North. She feels that it's a commemoration, but she feels it's basically celebrating the British invasion and the trouble that has been caused on our land and dividing our island. She said, I know my grandfather and many more like him must be turning in their graves that we will be doing anything to acknowledge the fact that the country got divided. Shame on them. And that's from Gronia in Kana. And she reckons her views are reflected by a lot of other people people as well that she is not on her own uh, on that one 1850 soccer players rugby players and all GAA players should be vaccinated says Nora everyone should be it should be made compulsory no excuse no uh, choice uh, but to get vaccinated but wait until October the 22nd when we lift all of the restrictions there'll be no more social distancing says Nora and then you're not going to know who has been vaccinated and who has not. And it is all pointing towards, because the numbers are falling and the numbers in the hospital are remaining steady, it is all looking like that all of the rest of the restrictions will be lifted on the 22nd, except for mask wearing. They're going to continue with mask wearing, certainly in retail, and mask wearing on public transport. But will will the social distancing, the two metres social distancing, will that be fully lifted? Uh, that will be announced before the uh, 22nd. And just on COVID certs, somebody said, wondering, uh, do guests attending a wedding in a hotel, do they need to have their COVID certs? Any advice uh, would be uh, would be gratefully re- received. I know the last time, it's been so, it's so long since we've looked into anything, is the last time we looked into weddings, we were told no. I know certainly if you're staying in a hotel, you don't need to have your, your COVID pass. Going dining inside in a hotel or in a cafe, if you're just 
you know, walking in off the street or whatever, you need to have it. But as far as I know, for a wedding, you don't have to be uh, COVID checked. I'll get... Um, I'll see if I can get that checked for you. But I remember the last time when they lifted the restrictions on the weddings and lifted the numbers going to uh, weddings. Has anybody been to a wedding lately where you checked, where you, where you asked to provide your COVID search? I can't get John Paul to check with me because I can see he's already busy uh, with the phones. Now, one thing I do want to give a mention to, and I was surprised that more people, uh, I've had a couple of texts in about this. I was surprised there wasn't more reacting to this. This is news that's coming out from the Pensions Commission that every one, a certain cohort of people are not going to be happy with and in total they reckon about 350,000 pensioners uh, could be hit with PRSI for the first time. This is new proposals that have been put forward. Now they're only proposals at the moment but this is what's on the table. It's the Pensions Commission. They want to remove what has been a special exemption that allows people over the age of 66 not to pay PRSI. This is on people who have a non-state uh, pension. Future governments face a massive challenge. The challenge is to maintain the funding for the state pension. So the Commission is looking at all ways that they can maintain that. And they're now believing that older people should be contributing. They're saying as a kind of an act of solidarity. If it gets introduced, the charge would be set at a rate of 4% on all weekly income of pensioners over €100. Euro. Now, obviously, a social welfare state payment or benefit wouldn't be wouldn't be taken into it. And it would apply to private and public sector pensions or if the income from a salary, anybody over the age of 66 who is still working would suddenly have to pay PRSI. Anybody getting income from savings, from dividends, from investment, uh, returns on an income, a rental income, if you were over 66, they would be paying PRSI for the very first time. Now, the Pensions Commission are recommending significant changing changes, including linking rises to inflation and offering greater flexibility around when people can start actually... Uh, uh, accessing their payments. And I mean, one idea that's been floated would be to allow those who started working early in their lives to have the option of retiring at 65, which that's a year earlier than they are at the moment when you can actually pick up your state pension of uh, 66. I don't think that's a really bad idea because we would have people today who are getting close to that, close to the age of 65, 66. Some of them could have been, were of a generation that could have been working since they were 14. Um, you know, went straight out of school and went straight into the workforce, never missed a day at uh, work and yet they're being asked to if they're in a job or they will allow them to stay until they're 66 but they won't pick up their pension until then. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think that one is a particularly uh, bad idea. They're also looking at those then who want to stay on working and would like to continue building up say pension credits that they should be able to work on until they're 70 because we know we have a problem that people in some jobs have to leave at 65 and then they have that full year of having to wait before they can actually collect their pension. We've often heard from people 65, 66 who say they would love to stay on and work but the company that they're working with says they they can't. Uh, so I, I again that's not a bad idea from the Pensions uh, Commission and of course one of the key recommendations this has been mentioned earlier in the week is that the state pension age that was due to go to 67 uh, that was due to go to 67 from this year it was due to start in January wasn't it? That's now been pushed out it's going to be 2031 before the pension age will kick in at 67. Now, the delays in raising 
the state pension age. This, that's going to have to be funded by obviously higher PRSI uh, payments. So obviously that's one of the reasons they're saying, well, let's look at pensioners who don't pay. They can contribute to the pot. They're also, of course, looking at self-employed people. At the moment, self-employed people pay less in PRSI. The contributions for self-employed is 4%. That's going to rise up to 11% in the coming years. The report is recommending that pension provision for long-term Carers should also be enhanced. Again, another terrific, terrific suggestion because you would have people who spent many years out of the workforce. They were providing care. In many cases, it was it was women uh, who, say, took time out to raise a family. There was also women and in a smaller number of men as well who would have taken time out, say, to care for an elderly relative. And they were out of the workforce for many years. And then, of course, because there was changes to how people assessed or accessed their state pension they discovered because they were out of work for this period of time they ended up not having enough credits and there's there's people listening to this programme predominantly women who don't get a full pension because of it so they're looking at saying if somebody was out of the workforce providing care then they should be recognised to ensure that they get more PRSI credits then that would take them closer to a fuller pension when it is time for them to uh, pick up their state pension but of of course, it's funding of our future pensions. That's one of the main reasons that the Pensions Commission was put in place because we know we are going to have a problem. If you look at even, say, last year, and I'm assuming the figures for last year would be similar, uh, this year would be similar to last year, but in last year, in 2020, for every one person in this country who was in receipt of a state pension, now be that a contributory or a non-contributory pension, for every pensioner in this country, there was 4.5 people out at work. And of course, it was their PRSI contribution and their tax contributions that went to fund those those pensions. By the time we reach 2050, which isn't that far away, they reckon for every person in receipt of a state pension, there'll only be two people working. That's based on the current projections. The problem that we have in this country is we're younger than our European neighbours, but we have a healthier population and we have a population that is living uh, longer so a move to impose uh, to raise more money under PRSI it has to be looked at it's certainly discussions have to start because they say 2050 will come quick enough and then you're going to have people who are pensioners people who are now out at work will be pensioners when it comes to 2050 and suddenly they'll be told when there isn't enough money in the pot because we don't have enough people out working to put the money in into it so I can see why all of these suggestions that are being made but the move to to impose PRSI on pensioners, I think that's not going to go down very well. It's going to be seen as a very unjust tax, particularly for some older people, because people, for example, who are not entitled to a state pension, older public servants, they'll end up paying PRSI for the first time. And while it's been, they're saying it's an act of solidarity, it's been spread out, they'll be saying, yeah, but people I worked with were never entitled to this particular state pension that you were talking about. So I could see there will be 
there will be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. But as I say, at the moment, it is just a proposal. It's one of many that's on the table from the Pension Commission's uh, report. Some of them, I think, will be welcomed and others people will certainly be scratching uh, their heads. But it's one, it's something that's been looked at. And at the moment, there will be three, uh, 350,000. There's a lot of pensioners who have a separate income outside of their state pension. And in many cases, it is, it is either a private pension that people will say they contributed to all of their working lives. But it can also be they could have savings, they could have a, a dividends, they've got investments, or maybe they bought uh, a house and there's a rental income. So there's other ways that they have been or they are receiving money and suddenly they will find themselves having to pay PRSI at a rate of 4% on anything over €100. That's where we leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul. Uh, Nick is with you. Talk to you on Monday. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.